And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Jake Sullivan became well-known around the country in 2016 as the senior policy advisor to Hillary Clinton in her campaign for president. But if you spent much time studying national security in the last decade, you'd know his name. He was the national security advisor for Vice President Biden. He was a top aide to Hillary Clinton when she was Secretary of State. And he was a major player in the negotiation of the nuclear agreement with Iran, uh, among other foreign policy initiatives of the Obama administration. I sat down with Jake in the fall when he visited the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago uh, to talk about North Korea, Iran, and a series of other challenges. Obviously, Uh, events have advanced since that time, but the fundamentals are the same. And it's hard to find a more incisive commentator on these issues uh, than Jake Sullivan. Jake Sullivan, great to be with you, and welcome to the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago. You were killing it with some students earlier today, and uh, happy to to see you. Well, thanks for having me here. I'm excited to be here. So... um, some some folks, you know, came come to politics and awareness of public affairs late, and some people grow up with it. Uh, you grew up in Minneapolis, uh, and you kind of grew up with it. Uh, your father was a journalist. Yeah, he worked at the Minneapolis Star Tribune. And what did he cover? So he mostly worked on the business side, but his uh, specialty was the economics of media organizations. And so once upon a time, that was kind of a sleepy backwater. And uh, over the course of the past couple decades, it has become one a of the- A sad story. A sad story, but a, a, de- a defining story in yeah. a lot of ways. So yeah. he's somebody who's had to actually learn about all these whole, you know, these new social media outlets and platforms and- the way the business model has changed so radically, and for the worse. Yeah. Well, having grown up in a local newspaper and watching the way uh, it has eroded with it, you know, all those newspapers used to be thick with classified ads and all kinds of other things that you can get for free online now. And I don't think local news has figured out a, a viable business model since, which is a huge hole in our um, in our system. So uh, I read somewhere that you had a globe of the world in your kitchen. Yeah, yeah, I had uh, four siblings. So the five of us would, you know, come home after practice, whatever it was and sit around the table. And uh, I made it a habit of just kind of studying the various continents at one point, learn the capital of every country in the world and then would go annoy people. Yeah, no, this is you are the kind of kid who everybody hates. (laughs) I mean, uh, let's Let's be honest about it. Yeah, yeah. It was, uh, uh, although, you know, I would, um, you know, I'd try to help them make some money by putting me up for prop bets on, you know, (laughs) geography quizzes and the like. So it is a good earn my keep. It is a good parlor trick, depending on what parlors you're exactly you're you're hanging around in. And uh, and your mom was in uh, in education. Was she a teacher? She was. She was a teacher. uh, And then after I left high school, she actually became the guidance counselor at the public high school I went to in Minneapolis. So to this day, I still run into people back in the Twin Cities who she got into college or advised what to do next. And so she left a mark on on a lot of young people in South Minneapolis. And you you and I first met uh, I think in 2008, when you were helping out on the debate team uh, for Obama and Biden right. in, in the general election. But the debate thing was something you've been doing all your life. This You were a big high school debater. Yeah, I did debate in high school and in college. And I spent a couple of years at Oxford and, and debated with the Oxford Union, which was a fascinating experience. Uh, And then Minnesota actually has a really big debate tradition for its uh, statewide races, its governor's races and Senate races. So I worked with Amy Klobuchar on her debate. She had eight debates in the closing two months of the campaign, including the kind of debates where you stand on bales of hay at Farm Fest and then, you know, some of the more formal ones as well and kind of cut my teeth in political debate by helping her out. And what what, what appealed to you about debating as a kid? You know, I actually think that being able to take ideas uh, and figuring out how to make the best case for both sides of an argument, recognizing that whatever position you hold, whatever you believe, uh, 
your argument's going to have some weaknesses and blind spots, and you've got to be able to acknowledge them. And the other side of the argument is going to have some good points, and you've got to be able to acknowledge those too, that that's always been an ethos of mine that was sharpened through debate. And coming into the policy world or into politics generally, I've tried to hold on to that, that even in a really polarized time, you're never going to be, you're never going to own 100% of the truth or have a completely impregnable argument. And debate reinforced that for me in a really I big way. I think a lot of politicians take a slightly different lesson uh, from all this, which is if you can make the best case on both sides at the same time, <laughs> yeah, right. that you should try and do that and thus, thus cover 100%, yeah, right, exactly. 100% of, of, of the field. Did you know uh, right from the beginning that, uh, I mean, there is a huge um, political, vivid political tradition in uh, um in Minnesota. In fact, when I was a young reporter, I was a young nightside reporter at the Tribune, and I loved my job, and I never got sick. And one day I, I called in sick because I was genuinely sick, but it was a Friday night. I'm sure they assumed that this was the sort of sickness a 22-year-old gets on a Friday night. And um, they said, well, that's too bad because uh, Hubert Humphrey is a, a pass, a, expected to pass away tonight. We wanted you to fly to Minnesota to Waverly and cover his death. I said, I'm going. And I spent the next uh, 36 hours uh, up and covering uh, the death of Humphrey in Minnesota, which was, I mean, he was an iconic figure. And everybody you talked to said, yeah, I knew Hubert. Hubert, you know, every time I, he always remembered my family. He was, there was this intimate relationship uh, with with him. Uh, but the whole DFL, uh, the the Democratic Farm Farmer Labor Party up there, was dominant uh, for years, and there was a great moderate Republican uh, tradition as there was throughout the Midwest. How aware of and how involved were you as a kid in that? And how much was that talked about around your house? You know, my earliest political memory was actually watching Walter Mondale at the 1984 convention and having my parents tell me that uh, he was definitely going to be the next president of the United States. Um, so I also learned disappointment in politics early on, too. But in the context of that campaign... This prepared you for your pollsters in the 2016 right exactly exactly <laughs> so they uh you know they they would over those months in 84 um talk a lot about hubert humphrey and his shadow still looms large over politics in minnesota his name's on the public policy school um and his brand of sort of common sense and civility and this he had this label the happy warrior yeah it's called the happy warrior that this the People's Democrat. In fact, I saw somewhere in the halls here uh, his campaign poster, The People's Democrat. There's still something, uh, a current that runs pretty deep in DFL politics um, that that is a legacy of Huber, Hubert Humphreys, and Walter Mondale carried that forward. And then in 1990, Paul Wellstone rode the green bus around Minnesota, and I followed that race in the papers every day uh, and actually had the opportunity to, to work on his 2002 reelection campaign. But even as a young person, the excitement of a guy coming from the grassroots, knocking off an incumbent, it really made me feel that politics could be all about positive change. And then interestingly, through the 90s and the 2000s, Minnesota was a kind of strange but wonderful environment for politics but because at once you had the most liberal member of the U.S. Senate, Paul Wellstone, and one of the most conservative in Rod Grams, and then Jesse Ventura, was the body governor, was elected yeah. governor. Yes. It was like, this is a state with the highest voter participation rate in the country, with the strongest ethos of community engagement anywhere, where people took their politics very seriously. But all these different kinds of personalities could actually win out in the end because people didn't just kind of stick strictly to to certain partisan lines. I hadn't thought about Jesse Ventura for a while, but it's interesting because he was kind of a forerunner when you think about it. He was a way for people to express. He became kind of a, a human Rorschach test for people who are angry at the establishment, who were mad at both parties. And uh, he was a guy who looked like he could snap any problem in two. Uh, and, uh, you know, probably was something that we should have thought about more as we were analyzing, uh, 2016. So you mentioned, uh, you sort of slid in there, um, 
Yale and Oxford and all of those things that also probably made you the object of derision on the part of the less intellectually gifted 99% of the rest of America. But uh, tell me about um, uh, about your decision to go into law. Was that always a plan of yours? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I, th- I feel like almost everyone who's a high school and college debater thinks really seriously about going to law school. I don't know if it's just because you get paid for arguing. Yeah, and right. Debating. Exactly. Yeah. It becomes a hey, it becomes a career, not just not just an extracurricular activity. I had thought for some time um, that I wanted to go into law um, because I really did feel like that being an advocate and and learning the law was a way to effectuate change and to to but interestingly the, what you studied international relations uh when you were at oxford right. so clearly you had you well you were the kid who spun the globe in your kitchen right, so right, you had exactly. a big interest in the world as well yeah you know i was kind of torn between two very different models of public service all the way through college and law school one model involved going back home to minneapolis being rooted in the community having a career in law and pursuing some form of public service. And the other was either going to Washington or going out into the world and working on foreign policy and international relations. And as I went through law school and then through clerking, I kind of saw these as two different paths and had a hard time choosing which one to go down. And actually ended up, my first choice was to return home to Minnesota and to join a law firm. And that's where I thought my career was headed uh, before that particular plan got derailed, and I ended up back out on the East Coast. Got derailed how? Well, Amy Klobuchar uh, was running for Senate um, shortly after. She started running for Senate shortly after I moved back home uh, and started work at, at a local law firm. And I had known her uh, before when she was the district attorney in, in Minneapolis. And she knew something of my debate background and asked if I would help out with these debates that I was talking about before. And then when she won... She asked if I would just come out for a few months to D.C. to help her with the transition and get up and running. And so I moved out to D.C. while staying at the law firm, keeping my office, keeping my artwork on the wall, thinking I'd be back sometime in the summer of 2007. And and you still haven't gotten back to collect your artwork. To a certain extent, that's right. Someone has <laughs> someone has uh, moved into that office and not just taken the files. So, but, I wonder when this guy's going to get his things. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I, I I skipped over one uh, part of your uh, your your story, which is the fact that you clerked at the Supreme Court for Justice Breyer, right. and you were there uh, at a pretty consequential time. You worked, I know, on uh, on a uh, a very consequential case, uh, Lawrence versus. Texas. Talk about that. Well, actually, I worked on Lawrence just before I went to the court. Oh, I see. Um, So I um, uh, worked with a group of people on a brief that essentially made the case that if you look around the world at the way in which norms are evolving with respect to due process and equal rights, that treating people differently because of who they love um, was becoming beyond the bounds of what uh, advanced societies think of as consistent with liberty and dignity. So it was an attempt actually pointed mostly at Justice Kennedy to say, um, painting on a larger canvas of the great traditions of liberty in Europe and elsewhere, uh, this whole issue of Lawrence v. Texas was a case about whether or not sodomy could be a crime. Um, Sex between two consenting same-sex adults could be a crime, which at this point seems crazy. But but back then, the lower courts held that that would be just fine, and there was a prosecution in Texas. And we were trying to make the case that not only was this outside the bounds of the American constitutional tradition, but it was outside the, the bounds of a, of a deeper set of traditions elsewhere. And actually, some of our work was cited in in the ultimate opinion that Kennedy wrote in that case, and I was proud to be a very small part of the effort that has made such profound progress since then. And then from there, I ended up going and spending a year clerking at the court for Justice Breyer, which was just an incredible experience. I think the Supreme Court's one of the few places left, A, that doesn't leak, you know, there's no leaks coming out of there, B, where everyone treats each other with basic respect and civility, and see where you can actually get some unusual results. People will change their minds on things and surprise you in ways that doesn't seem to happen very much anymore in, in Congress or elsewhere. So when you went to Washington with Klobuchar, uh, uh, 
how did things evolve from there that you never made it back to Minnesota? So uh, I was working for her in the Senate when I got a call from Richard Holbrook, actually, um, who was uh, the best friend of a guy named Les Gelb, uh, Mm -hmm. who's the president of the Council on Foreign Relations and had been an old mentor of mine in college. I had worked for him for a summer and then spent a year commuting down to New York to keep working for him my senior year of college. And Holbrook called me up and I'd never met the guy before and immediately started grilling me about foreign policy issues with, without any real context, and then telling me my answers were terrible, um, which was, I came to learn, kind of classic Richard Holbrook. Um, but ultimately, it emerged that he was looking to hire a foreign policy person for Hillary's 2008 campaign, uh, and was probing whether I would be up to the Holbrook standard as someone for him to put forward uh, to the policy team on the campaign. And, you know, I, he said, would you be interested? And that to me seemed like just an extraordinary opportunity. And so, uh, I went and met with the campaign. They ultimately decided they didn't want me to do foreign policy. They wanted me to do the debate prep. They wanted me to be the person to kind of lead the effort to prepare Hillary. And as you remember, there was something yeah. like 20, 28 or no, there was a, it was I a mean, huge number of debates. Ridic- yeah. at, I mean, at one point there were maybe three 25 debates. in the primary and then there were the three. Yeah. The so general. I think it was 25, 25 yeah. including three in a single week at one point yeah. and just a, an incredible schedule across the country stretching from April of 2007 was the first one in South Carolina I to April well. of 2008. So a whole, yeah, I mean, this was a year long slog. Um, so I thought this would be somewhat of a, you know, lower impact job, maybe a few debates along the way. And it ended up being an incredibly intense experience. So you were working full time on that. That's right. And you, you obviously, uh, uh, Barack Obama won those, uh, won the nomination. And then you, uh, I think, uh, you you can maybe Greg Craig brought you in. Is it was actually so. Uh, Tom Donilon and Ron Klain were running our debate. Came process, as the yeah. the yeah. kind of outside debate advisors yeah. to join you guys yes. in that effort, and uh, they sort of brought me in as the junior partner. You know, yeah. as the guy to be the engine room and, in the in the prep process. Yeah, and you were helping. You were helping to prep Greg, who was playing. Uh, Playing John McCain in our right, mm-hmm. uh, me and uh, another guy named Chris Wiedemann helped Greg so that he could be the best possible John McCain um, against uh, then Senator Obama, um, and then I was also helping uh, these incredibly thick debate books that, that yeah. Tom and Ron produced. A lot of that was uh, was my initial handiwork that then got you know got worked over as we went. Yeah. Yeah, they were vol- they were voluminous. Yeah, I, I, I remember one good exercise. At one point, picking those things up. Yeah, Senator Obama looked around and sort of said, "You know, uh, is this really yes <laughs> the best strategy for winning this debate?" So, is, so know. let me ask you: how, You were in very close close proximity, had spent time prepping Hillary and prepping Obama. Uh, what were the stylistic differences that you saw? You must have been struck by by the difference in in uh in these personalities. Yeah. Uh Hillary um even in debate felt that this was essentially uh an exercise in uh, kind of fighting out policy disagreement. I think President Obama saw the debate process as a clash of visions to a much greater extent. And so um Hillary on any given answer would think, how do I take the question in its literal form and give the best answer to that question on point, on topic, and when, if it's on tax reform or it's on immigration, I'm going to make sure that people see I've got a better case to make on this issue than the other guy. President Obama would hear the question and think, how does this relate to the larger argument at play in this election? And how do I ladder up to that? Um, in some ways, you know, Hillary liked debating more than I felt Obama did. Um, she enjoyed the give and take, uh, 
she felt it was actually a place that she just felt really comfortable because this was operating on her terms, on her ground. She was getting to talk about these issues and, you know, do so in a way with sort of passion and conviction. I think President Obama found the whole exercise a bit more artificial. Yeah. And I, you know, in prepping him, he would constantly push back against all of us who were trying to say, you know, there's a bit of stagecraft here and a bit of theater. And he'd sort of say, I know it's, it's all fake. It's not, this is not a real way to actually. That continued into 2012. As you know, we had some difficulties (laughs) uh, along the way there in part because he did feel that it was, um, you know, that there was a lot of play acting involved in that. But, um, but the, the, the contrast that you describe. Uh, in a sense, speaks to sort of larger stylistic differences that may in part explain um, why someone as uh, intellectually gifted as as Hillary had a hard time in the process herself, because um, so much of politics is a nonlinear process. So much of it is about back of the brain kind of emotional stuff. And so much of it is about the larger story that you tell and it's not about sort of the details um i mean is that a fair i i don't want to be unfair to her no in fact you know there was i thought one of the best moments in her convention speech is when she sort of took this on directly and said you know it is true that i sweat the details that's what i do and it's because her ethos is whether that one extra kid gets the health insurance or you bring the cost of prescription drugs down by some marginal amount that matters to a family or matters to a community. And for her, when she thinks about politics, she thinks about policy in those more incremental terms that you make change kind of person by person. And when you put that on a, the stage of a presidential campaign, it is harder to have it add up to a grand vision. And it is harder to make a case for sort of sweeping change as opposed to incremental change. And I think in 2016 in particular, when people, it was more about the politics of anger than the politics of answers and diagnosis to a certain extent mattered more than the specific prescriptions. It didn't suit her style or the way that she approached these issues as well. And so she'd be frustrated. You know, Bernie would make sort of grand pronouncements and Hillary would say, well, you can't do that. You know, this is how you have to do it. And and I think... Well, he, you must have learned some lessons as a 14-year-old and, and then 12 years later with, watching Paul Wellstone because he w- much, was much more akin to the Bernie approach yeah. to... Politics talked very much in values, yeah. uh, and you know less so in in sort of specific incremental yeah. steps. Yeah, yeah, no, and but but this is you know at the end of the day, these campaigns, staff matters and strategy matters, but the candidate, in a way, matters most of all. And Hillary, uh, who as first lady, as senator, as secretary of state, was. I think, profoundly effective at making policy change and policy impact. When it came to the campaign, she would consistently say, look, I think this is a job interview. I'm, I'm being put up for a job, and I need to explain to people what exactly it is I am going to do for them. And she felt this very passionately. And so it meant that her stump speech was less about values and narratives and stories and more about I'm let me let me walk through the major agenda items of my platform and explain to you each one of them and in the context of 2016 particularly um with the mood of the country and the sense of dislocation and disaffection with Washington and with politics that kind of approach just didn't resonate the way that the more visceral approach of a Sanders or a Trump worked but that was Hillary that's who she was um that that's who she has always been and it's what made her so effective in government and you know at the presidential stage it it was something and she acknowledged this is acknowledges this in her book that made it harder for her especially in a context like 2016. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with Jake Sullivan. Just to continue the discussion on this, I want to get back to your work 
with her in the State Department. But since we're on the subject of her as a as a candidate, it's also true that in 2016, there was a very strong orientation for change. And um, it's fair to say that she was in many ways, uh, you know, she be- she believed in the status quo in some ways, not not that policies didn't need to change, but she believed in this kind of grinding process by which you arrive at it, uh, the give and take, the nature. Of- she had lived in that environment for a very long time and was associated with it, been in Washington since 1993 and very much visible in people's minds. She was not if if change was the question, she wasn't the obvious answer in that regard. You know, it's interesting. Bill Clinton had a great riff on the campaign about kind of theories of change. And at the end of the day, the kind of change people were looking for in 2016 was a kind of upend the system, you know, throw out, throw the bums out. Let's get something totally new and fresh and different in, which was hard for someone like her because of her history and background to contend with. But I thought she had, and and Bill Clinton put it very well, a real case to make that throughout her career, there was no one who had proven year after year, job after job, the capacity to actually make change that made a difference in people's lives. And And Bill Clinton would go back to her days as First Lady of Arkansas and walk through the change that she was making on the ground for people in yeah. the time at First Lady and Center and Secretary of State. But in the competing arguments over who owns change, yeah. that fell uh, to an argument that basically said, you've been in Washington a long time. Uh, you're part of the system. And also, by the way, uh, you're running for the third term of an incumbent. Um and we want something that looks like a lot more radical change than that, either in the form in the primary of people who supported Bernie Sanders or in the form of Donald Trump. That was a real wave, and it was hard to hold that wave back. There's no doubt about it. But it's unfortunate because from the perspective of actually, you know, of a kind of sincere being able to look someone in the eye and say, can I make your life better? Can I change your life for the better? I thought that she had uh, an effective story to tell and that we didn't always serve her well in helping her tell it effectively. Um, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you these two things. Um, uh, One is, um, if knowing that there was this sense of jaundice about the system and so on, did that not make uh, things like um, the speeches that she accepted right before she became a candidate in front of the financial groups and so on. Wasn't that sort of a certification of, yeah, she's really the system. She is part of that system. And um, did you and others say, you know, maybe that's not a good idea? Uh, At the time that she was doing that, I had, uh, that was after she left the State Department and I had moved from the State Department to the White House where I was uh, serving as uh, Vice President Biden's National Security Advisor. So I was in the swirl of the Iran negotiations and so forth. So I wasn't. So you're in the clear on this one. Part of the, uh, part of the team that was, that was working on those issues. She says in her book uh, that, of course, this ended up being a mistake and in particular the optics of it and how it as you said played into a larger critique about her i don't think she saw that at the time i have to say i wasn't there but i don't think i would have seen that at the time in 2013 and and let me just take a sec to explain why because it seems so obvious in hindsight giving speeches to banks is a bad idea yeah it's that what's funny about the 2016 election is that In many ways, it played out issues that were deferred from the 2012 election. So you had the financial crisis in 2008, um, and people are pissed off at Wall Street. They're pissed off at the banks that get a bailout, and they don't. In 2012, uh, there was nobody like a Bernie making the argument, essentially, that said – you got to break it all up. You got to you got to upend the system altogether. But I will say there was sort of a bit of a populist edge to the Obama campaign, especially relative to Romney. Well, and- this is the point, though, right, is that President Obama's opponent was the ultimate corporate plutocrat. Uh, but the argument against him uh, was 
kind of made in a way that it was, you know, it was very personal to Romney. And, and it was about some of the core Republican philosophy of trickle down and, you know, what, what uh, Romney was putting forward in his platform. But there wasn't a reckoning uh, of the kind that we ended up having in 2016 around the banks, particularly around Wall Street. And what happened with Wall Street in 2008. Um, And so the toxicity of the Wall Street issue uh, heading into 2016 and the populist surge of Bernie Sanders was something I don't even think Bernie Sanders himself saw just how deep it was when he got in the race, let alone. I I appreciate what you're saying. I think a lot of folks would have said. This isn't a good idea. I agree with that. I'm not. I'm yeah. not arguing that even even looking forward, they would have said that. I'm just saying that that yeah, how bad an idea it was, like how <laughs> how much it hurt, and it hurt a lot. It did came more sharply into focus because of the nature of Bernie's campaign. Um, the the one thing that you were there for was when you went to the State Department as a as her senior advisor, and um, it was in that period that she made this fateful decision about her emails and where she, uh, you know, the 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 notion of using private emails using the server that she shared with her uh, with her husband. Um, did you advise her on that decision? No, no. And did you think it uh, did it concern you? Because you were obviously communicating with her on this. No, it didn't. I mean, this was uh, first of all, uh, she had transitioned from a private email account in the Senate, which many senators had, to a private email as Secretary of State, which many other cabinet secretaries had. Uh, so uh, I presumed, as I think many other people did, dozens if not hundreds of people were communicating with her that. This had been worked out logistically through technical arrangements with the right people. So I didn't give it a second thought while I was at the State Department. I did not feel that there was anything untoward about it while I was there. And, you know, whether it's Secretary of Defense or the administrator of the EPA or other senior cabinet secretaries, this was this was not uncommon practice. I uh you know, I was in the White House at the time, and I didn't communicate very often with her at all. It was more pleasantries when I uh, emailed with her. And I didn't give a second thought to what her email uh, address was. But I also uh, just assumed, as with all the other cabinet agencies, that she had an, a, an email, State Department email as well, and was doing State Department work on State State Department email Um Presumably, this is another one of those hindsight is twenty twenty things now. But um, some of it, I guess one of the things that I observe, and I don't want to belabor these points uh, because I want, there's some really serious contemporary issues that I want to talk to you about and tax your expertise on, uh, uh, on national security issues. But um, uh, there, there was a kind of, what appeared to be a furtiveness, a kind of a concern about exposing herself too much, partly maybe because she had been beaten up quite a bit over a long period of time, but don't, you know, so this sort of fit a pattern uh, of the sense that maybe she wasn't being as straightforward with with as she should have been. And, you know, when you're running for president of the United States, you're like, I would say it's like a MRI for the soul, whoever you are, and whatever you have, whatever there is, it will be known. Uh, you know, even before the Russians came along to help that process uh, along. What is it about her personally that made it so, uh, that, that made her, that, that put her in that frame of mind? And also that you know her personally, you know how engaging she can be, how warm she can be, how in the moment she can be. What contributed to this quality that made it so difficult for her at times to appear to be uh, spontaneous, answering questions uh, without filtering them through a political computer and so on? Well, I mean, the first thing I would say with the email piece, I absolutely acknowledge the way the political narrative developed was that this was placed in a broader case about her around, you know, somehow – being stealth, private being stealthy, or whatever. I don't actually buy that 
as being what was behind what happened with her decision on the email. I think she and I were both enormously proud, not just of the work we did at State, but of the correspondence that's contained in that email. And I think, of course, it was a boneheaded move in the end, right? Of course it was. There's no doubt about it. But there was nothing about it at the time that I think struck her as trying to execute some stealthy agenda or that she was trying to hide something. And, um, you know, I honestly think that as much as people don't really want to buy the answer, it was she was on a personal email system in the Senate. She moved over to something that already existed. It's not like she went out and bought a private server and set it up. Her husband had something for the foundation that she moved this on to. And that's what she used. And, you know, previous secretaries of state had done it. Other people had done it who are not being assigned a kind of like grander scheme for why they were using personal email that that has been ascribed to her. Now, you get held to a higher standard when you run for president. And from a political perspective, I'm not debating the negative impact by any means. But I do I would want to push back on the idea that this actually is a reflection of a personality trait. I, I really just don't buy that. that was not my experience in the four years that I spent working with her or in our exchanges or correspondence, which as it's been exposed to the world to see shows somebody who is doing her job and doing it very effectively. I think the larger question of kind of the suit of armor, you know, of her putting on the suit of armor and feeling like um, she's got to keep sort of one eye open for attacks coming her way that that exists to a certain extent. I think that is a real uh, has been a real issue. And I think there's a couple dimensions to it. One is obviously she's been around a lot. She's had a lot thrown at her. So naturally, she's developed some armor in response to that. I think part of it is um, related to gender as well, that that as a as a female candidate, particularly a female candidate for president, she felt she had to walk a different kind of line um, than uh, a male candidate would have to. Um, but I also think that there becomes a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy about this, if that makes sense. Like it becomes a doom loop that's hard to get out of that. In fact, she'd go through a dozen interviews where she was nothing but kind of free and open and, you know, easygoing and showed all of the wonderful, attractive sides of her. And then there'd be one moment and all of a sudden it'd be, there it goes again. And then she would respond to that and she'd respond to that by tightening up a bit and so on. So I think especially in 2016, a lot of people carried, uh, journalists carried priors into the race about her and how she was as a candidate and so forth that ended up having an impact on the race itself, in addition to some of her natural instincts. Do you think she was uh, uh, was effective as a as a performer? I mean, and I don't I don't use that term pejoratively, but was she open enough? Was she did she connect with people in the way one has to? You know, 2016 is a funny year because when she had her moments to actually be unfiltered, kind of speaking to the American people, particularly in the debates, and when she had opportunities to, you know, work with direct in the room with crowds as she was going around the country, I think she was way more effective than she has given given credit for. What we failed to do was somehow be able to break through the noise of everything, including emails, which help blot out the sun partly because the there were a, the, the stories shifted a little bit in nuance from time to time i mean it, it took her a while to land it felt like on that on that story yeah but honestly to be honest with you i think part of the reason for that is i think she was really confused as to how this had taken on this level of importance in the race and in hindsight i think it's fair to ask whether or not that that really was responsible and fair. And so I do think she just is a human reaction, thought she could resolve it relatively expeditiously. It obviously was hanging around and hanging around. And there's no doubt then that she was experimenting with different ways of trying to finally put the thing to bed. Yeah. And it kept going. So Whatever responsibility she bears, experiment in private. You know, know, whatever. Well, but at the same time, when when you try something and it just doesn't work, you gotta you gotta maybe try something else. But whatever responsibility she or we bear for that, the the bottom line is, she uh, did not get the opportunity. And, And then, of course, Trump comes along and and 
the, the everything all 24 hours a day is about Trump. She did not get the opportunity to be seen in uh, the kind of direct engagement circumstances where I think she could be and often was extremely effective. One one time when the press finally turned to her and said, hey, look, this is something she's saying, something you should pay attention to was, of course, it was about Trump. It was the speech she gave in San Diego on foreign policy. And press covered it. Uh, they They showed it from start to finish. They played clips of it. They said, oh, my God, you know, she's funny and she's human and she's making a good argument but that was pretty rare she didn't it's not her doing that i think was far less rare than uh her opportunity to show it and there was a number of reasons for that some of which were self-inflicted some of which had to do with donald trump and some of which had to do with the way that the infrastructure of covering hillary clinton got built up it just there wasn't a lot of appetite for saying okay we're going to take the next hour the way that they did with Trump and just give you a Hillary live and you can decide for yourself. She rarely got that opportunity. Yeah. Um, well, Trump knew sort of like how to, how to attract that opportunity by being outrageous. And, um, and you know, he, he would say I'm good TV. I mean, and that's uh, part of the modern media landscape that candidates have to deal with. Uh, We're going to take another short break. We'll be right back with Jake Sullivan. The Russians uh, obviously played a big role. I don't think we know yet the degree, uh, uh, the extent of it and all of its connections. And obviously there are a bunch of probes uh, going on right now. Um, when did you what was your level of awareness and and how when did you start thinking to yourself man this is a this is a real problem i have to say it took me a little while uh when i first uh had suspicions that they were rooting around in the systems i thought um this has happened before you know the yeah. obama campaign right. yes, had, been, had been hit by foreign intelligence intrusions other campaigns had but it was always kind of can we figure out who the personalities are and what policies are they going to pursue it wasn't to weaponize the the information that was taken so i kind of assumed that that was going to be a cost to doing business in this campaign so it wasn't until the democratic national convention when the information was leaked and you could see there was a different game afoot here that i thought Okay, they are now doing something. They're they're executing a playbook in the United States that they've executed in Europe before, which is now no longer just hack, but hack and leak and leak selectively in ways that try to damage a candidate. Uh, and pretty quickly after we saw those first leaks hit, we started calling out the Russians even before the intelligence community did, because at that point we knew what was going on. And then my concern grew over the course of the rest of the campaign because of the signals we were seeing that suggested this wasn't going to stop with the DNC. Um, and the drumbeat of things like Stone and Assange and others saying there's more coming, Podesta's coming, etc. So, and then they came. And then they came. The issue of this dossier has come up and uh, who exactly paid for it. It's now, now I guess, accepted fact that the Democratic National Committee and the Hillary for America campaign in some combination uh, paid for it. Were you aware that, uh, did you have privy to this dossier and were you aware that this was, this project was underway? Uh, no, I first saw the dossier uh, when it was published by BuzzFeed in whenever that was, January, February of, of 2017, and, and I had no Were idea. Were you surprised when you heard that, that, that the party and your campaign had paid for it? Yeah, I didn't know who was paying for this up until a few days before the announcement when I learned that the campaign and the, and the DNC, the announcement being just you know a few weeks ago, that the campaign and the DNC had paid for it. How could that, I mean, people will, this is the question that, how, do, how does that happen? How does it happen? I mean, I, I know that it happens, it could happen that the candidate wouldn't know, or, or you know, various players wouldn't know, but somebody had to, somebody had to authorize it. So, uh, who? Well, I mean, I, I 
think I'm sure someone others will probably ask you that question too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I I can't tell you. I don't I don't know how the decision was taken. I personally I have to this. tell you. I mean, the fact of the matter is that um, that was paid for by Republican opponents, Democratic opponents. Um, yeah, personally, opposition research is opposition research. This was of a different of a different sort. Um, uh, so, I, you know, I, I think there's a little bit of kind of throwing your hands up like Claude Rains in Casablanca, not you, but in the political community saying, I'm, I'm shocked gambling. that yeah, there's exactly. gambling in this casino. Look, I mean, yeah, the bottom line is that the effort by the Republicans to suggest in this very weird, twisted way, this was collusion with the Russians, yeah, is completely right. bizarre. Uh, the idea that a campaign would seek to pay for opposition research is as old as campaigns themselves. Uh, and so, yeah, I don't I'm not. And why won't anybody saying, own it? Why won't someone say, yeah, yeah, I I authorize that? Oh, I, I assume that as as we go forward, somebody people will. are asking the questions. Everyone's going to say, here's exactly how it happened. And I certainly don't want my saying I didn't know who paid for the dossier to suggest I'm saying I want to distance myself from it. By no means am I saying that. I mean, I believe that it is perfectly appropriate and responsible if we get wind or people associated with the campaign get wind that there may be real questions about the connections between Donald Trump, his organization, his campaign and Russia, that that be explored fully. And by the way, I think the Congress agrees with me. The Justice Department agrees with me. And at this point, we're finding out more and more that's deeply troubling. So it's not there's nothing about it that, from my perspective, is concerning. All I can say is that I learned who funded the dossier pretty much when everyone else did. You, uh, One of the big projects that you worked on uh, uh, when you were in the government uh, was the Iran negotiation, and you played a significant role in it. Um, talk about the role that you played and— um, and and the product that was produced in the summer of 2012, uh, President Obama and Secretary Clinton decided to spend send a very small team of us to Oman, which is a country on the Persian Gulf, uh, and had agreed to be a broker between the U.S. and Iran for a direct dialogue with Iranian diplomats about whether or not we could resolve their uh, the nuclear issue with Iran in a peaceful manner. Uh, so three of us went. Um, we flew commercial. We flew under the radar. Uh, we showed up in the capital of Oman, Muscat. Uh, we sat with the Iranians basically to explore two questions. First, uh, were these Iranians authorized? Uh, did they actually have the imprimatur of the supreme leader and the authorities in Tehran to make a deal? Or were they just kind of freelancers and guys off the street? And second, were they serious? Were they prepared to actually make a deal? And the reason that President Obama and Secretary Clinton decided 2012 was the right time to try this was the sanctions were finally biting. And Iran was feeling the pinch. They were feeling economic pressure. And we knew that if we went and said, you know, if you want to get sanctions relief, you're going to have to work with us, uh, that they would, you know, have to consider that very carefully. It turned out the answer in at that point, the answer to the first question was yes, these guys were serious, they were real, they were authorized. But the answer to the second question was no, they weren't yet ready to talk in a meaningful way about the kind of constraints they'd have to accept for their program. Yeah, I was with... Uh I was with President Obama during the, some of those bilats in 2009 and 2010 when he just – and Secretary Clinton was there, obviously, just hammering everybody across the table, every country we went to, about the importance of these sanctions. I think that's an underappreciated part of the story was exactly what brought the Ar Iranians to the table was these withering sanctions that – including from Russia and China that – uh, were unparalleled at the time. And this is getting countries to go against their economic interest, which is one of the hardest things that you can do when you're engaged in diplomacy is go to another country and say, hey, you're going to lose a bunch of money on this deal, but this is important to us, so you have to come along. So President Obama, Secretary Clinton went around the world, like you said, for two years, twisting arms and basically saying to people, you got to do a couple things. You got to cut off your oil purchases from Iran or at least dramatically reduce them. 
and you got to freeze Iranian assets in your banks and stop doing the kind of business with them you were before. And they pulled it off. They not only got a Security Council resolution that laid the basis for this, but they actually got countries to follow through so that in 2012, uh, Iran's oil exports had been reduced from two and a half million barrels a day to one million barrels a day. And tens of billions of dollars of Iranian assets were frozen overseas. And their economy went through something like a 25% drop, like a quarter of Iran's GDP just fell out the bottom, all as a result of that work, of the work of building this global campaign of yeah. sanctions. And, and uh, you know, for those in high places who doubt the value of multilateralism, uh, that's a prime example of it. That's something that the U.S. could not have achieved through sanctions of its own. No, that was the European Union, India, China, South Africa, Korea. It was countries on every continent of every size, of every degree of relationship with the United States, close friends, competitors, adversaries. And we stitched the whole thing together under the leadership of the president and the secretary. And that created a circumstance in which we could go to the Iranians because we had their attention and say, you know, if you want out from under all this, you're going to have to deal with us and not just with us, but with the other world powers we've lined up behind us. And the thing that uh, appeared to make it possible, in addition to the changing economic conditions on the ground, was the changing political conditions in Iran and the election of Rouhani uh, as president. You were involved in arranging this phone call between President Obama and Rouhani that really sort of opened the door to the next phase of this story. Explain how that came about. Well, this is a great example of how uh, foreign policy can seem like a very distant thing, but it ends up being extremely human. So uh, President Obama had expressed interest in spending a few minutes just for a brief encounter with President Rouhani when he came to New York for the UN General Assembly. The idea basically being that we were in the thick of the negotiations at that point, and we had this secret channel going strong, although no one else outside really knew that. And he wanted As to, is often the case with secret channels. Uh, fair point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there, are some, there are some of those secret channels that are more <laughs> yeah, effective than others, right? Yeah, so you're right. Yes. Yeah. We're, we're proud of the, yeah, the super special secret, <laughs> double secret nature of this channel. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, so President Obama thought, you know, if he and Rouhani could just sit for a few minutes and basically reinforce the idea that that the political will was there to get this done, that that would help give impetus for the negotiations. So I sat down privately in New York uh, in a on, on the side of a hotel bar with a senior Iranian who was very close with President Rouhani, and we talked about what it would take to get the two guys in the same room together. In the end, the Iranians got cold feet on actually meeting. They just, I think President Rouhani thought he might face too much blowback at home. Because he's got, you know, going. we think of hard lines in our own politics, right. but he's got the ultimate hardliner problem in Iran. Yeah, it's a whole different deal. I mean, you're talking about a massive security establishment he doesn't control, a bunch of clerics he doesn't control, and of course, the supreme leader himself. So his political exposure was of a different order than an American president's uh, political exposure. Um, and so he got cold feet on the meeting. And we were disappointed because we thought this would not only be a positive public statement of momentum uh, in this process, but also would actually legitimately just help the diplomacy. Uh, so then that was early in the week. At the end of the week, literally as President Rouhani was driving to the airport, the same guy that I'd been talking to called me up on a cell phone and said, hey, by the way, President Rouhani's headed to the airport, but he'd, he'd be open to having a phone call with President Obama. And so I was in my office in the EEOB just across the street from the White House, and I, I came running over to see... Uh, the uh, you know the senior national security team and collectively we went running breathlessly into the Oval to ask the president if he'd be up for this and he looked at us like why are you even asking you know of course let's let's get this going and so I went down to the Situation Room to arrange the phone call and the way it worked was I just had this guy's cell phone and one other guy's cell phone and we were going to kind of patch these all together and Rahani was going to get on the phone so I went back up to the Oval. Um, ben and uh, Ben Rhodes and Tony Blinken were there with the president, 
And as they were dialing President Rouhani in, I had this thought that this could be some giant prank. Like what? I'm just calling random cell phones. Like what yeah, if that could have sent you right back to your your law firm, and your artwork <laughs> yeah. in Minneapolis? Probably yeah. not even. But, <laughs> uh, yes, I would have gone to some distant island. Um, so I thought, you know, what if it's like Canadian disc jockeys who've figured out? I, I went back through my head. No, of course I was talking to the the guy. I've talked to him before. And it was all okay, but I just had this yeah. two minutes of absolute terror, yeah. uh, which kind of, in a way, for me, ruined this incredible moment. You know, everyone else is... Hey, you always have uh, your memories. You know? Yeah, right. So the, I, I want to le- jump ahead in the interest of time. Yeah. You concluded an agreement. Uh, it obviously, uh, as in any negotiation involved, give and take. Um, you know what the critiques are. Um Run down the, the 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 pluses and minuses, and what you think the impact now is, if any, of uh, President Trump's uh, refusal to certify that the Iranians are um, uh, are living by their end of the of this particular agreement. You know, it's obviously an, an enormously complex technical issue, but when it boils down to it, we're, what we're trying to do is stop Iran from being able to build a nuclear bomb. And there's only two ways to build a nuclear bomb. One is to get some highly enriched uranium and put it in a bomb. And the other is to get uh, reprocessed plutonium and put it in a bomb. So you got to stop them from getting enough uranium or enough plutonium to do that. That's, that's the name of the game. That requires a diplomatic agreement where essentially they give up enough of that capacity so you can be confident that they can't get there. So on the plutonium side, uh, we had them essentially disable and pour concrete into their plutonium reactor and closed off that pathway. And on and the on the ship, the ninety seven percent of the fissile material. Well, then that's on the uranium right, side. Right. On the yes, uranium yeah. side, what we had them do was dismantle a whole bunch of centrifuges, and then ship ninety eight percent of their low enriched uranium, enough for what would have been ten to twelve bombs worth if they had. More, more highly enriched it, had them ship it out of the country so it was out of their possession. So they're left with a very limited number of centrifuges and a tiny little stockpile, not enough for them to break out to get a bomb without giving us a huge amount of lead time to see it and stop them. And then the other aspect was to say, well, it's not good enough to know we've closed off those pathways. We also have to be able to make sure they're not cheating or doing something in secret. So we need the most comprehensive, most intrusive set of inspections anywhere in the world to check and see whether or not they're cheating, to deter them from trying to cheat, and detect them if they do. So that's in place. Now, opponents of the deal basically make three arguments. The first is that it just ends on some date, and after that date, Iran is authorized to have as many bombs as it wants. That's just false. This is the sunset clause argument. There is no sunset on Iran's permanent uh, commitment to never get a nuclear weapon, and there is no sunset on all of those inspection provisions to make sure that that is the case. Some of the constraints, particularly on the uranium, come off in the out years, and I do think we're going to need to deal with that uh, with additional agreements down the road. But we don't need to renegotiate this deal to do that. We can do what we do with other arms control agreements. We can add provisions later at the appropriate time. The second argument is that it doesn't cover all of the regional activities of Iran. And of course that's true. This was an arms control agreement. It was meant to deal with Iran getting a nuclear bomb and stopping them from doing that. But we reserve the right in this deal to be able to go after Iran for its regional behavior however we want. We, we have placed no constraints on ourselves, whether it's economic pressure or it's intelligence-led operations or support for our partners in the region. All of that is available to us. And then the third argument is that Iran is just going to cheat. They're just they, – they're – Well, you know. as, but the other – we should add – I mean one of the other complaints is that is the development of, uh, of missile systems and so on that could deliver weapons in the long run that live outside of this agreement as well. Right. Now, the question on the missiles is we looked at this issue and basically said – 
at the end of the day, to get a nuclear agreement, we have to make sure that they can't take a nuclear payload, put it on top of a missile, and deliver it anywhere. There are two ways as, to as do the that. Koreans are right. North exactly. Koreans are trying to I do mean, that. one way to do that is to go after the missiles. The other way of doing that is go after the nukes. And what we've done is go after the nukes and stop them from being able to do that. We made a judgment on the missiles themselves that we're not going to abide that. We'll continue putting pressure on them for their missile program, but we're not going to stop ourselves from getting all these nuclear constraints just because missiles aren't in the middle of this. If we can make sure they can never put a nuclear payload on top of a missile by curbing their nukes, that's a big win. And let's take that win. So what is the step that Trump just uh, took? So what Trump did is... There's a a law that Congress passed that basically requires him every 90 days to certify that Iran is in compliance and that this deals in the interest of the United States. President declined to certify. What happens then is Congress has 60 days to decide whether it's going to snap back all the sanctions and essentially walk away from the deal. Congress is not doing that. Congress may pass some other law, but it's decided we're not walking away from this deal because even Republican critics recognize that walking away at this point makes no sense. However, by creating this whole drama around will he or won't he stay in the deal or leave the deal, I think Trump has really taken everyone's eye off the ball of going after these other challenges that Iran poses, including the missiles, including its behavior in the region, so that everyone right now in Europe, in China, the other players we need to push back against Iran are worried more about the risk Washington poses than they are about the risk Tehran poses. And the brilliance of the Obama strategy on Iran was to make sure that the onus was constantly on Iran and the international community was with us. That's how we got those sanctions. That's how we got this deal. And Trump has flipped the script on that in ways that I think are damaging to our strategy. Also, they put the deal on thin ice because at any point now over the next year, he could just decide, you know what, uh, I've decided since I've decertified, it's time for us to walk away and put the sanctions back in place. And so I think this deal is on a very unstable foundation right and now. What is that, uh, and what does that mean for uh, Rouhani in Ir- Ir- Iran? Well, in a way, it's handed, I think, uh, Rouhani uh, uh, and the Iranians a short-term victory in their foreign policy, but a very difficult uh, political dynamic for Rouhani internally. The victory in their foreign policy is they get to go around to the rest of the world and say, we're the good guys. We're complying with the deal. We're doing our part. The Americans are the ones whose word you can't trust. And they're loving doing that right now. And it's, and I'm not saying it's entirely working, but it's having some effect elsewhere. It's making it harder for us to keep a united front against Iran. However, at the same time, Rouhani now has to answer to the critics back home who said, see, we told you that you shouldn't have done this deal in the first place. And so he's in a bit of a perilous position, uh, which I think it's not to our advantage to strengthen the hand of folks who ultimately want to walk away from this deal because this deal is in our in Iran, because this deal is in our interests. The president just got back from Asia, 12 days in Asia. Uh, Obviously, North Korea has become a uh, a bigger crisis. Um, how would you assess the trip, and uh, particularly uh, in terms of our geopolitical sort of place in that region uh, relative to China? I think it was really disturbing, 12 days. And I've tried my hardest on a lot of these difficult foreign policy issues, including North Korea, to not just be knee-jerk against everything this administration does. I think on North Korea in particular, they're up against a really hard set of circumstances. Which which has bewildered. We didn't solve it, right? The Obama administration didn't solve it, Bush administration, Clinton administration. So I don't want to just be a knee-jerk partisan on this, but... It is hard to look at those 12 days and see them as anything other than the United States retreating from a role of leadership in Asia and in the world, of ceding ground to China, of ceding ground to authoritarian dictators, of making our friends feel less comfortable and less confident in us. And in that, in all of those senses, making us less safe and secure and reducing, I think, our long-run economic prospects because we really are creating circumstances in which China is going to be writing the rules rather than us. I think that is all 
uh, was part of that, and, and I don't say this to be provocative, although I could be, was part of that withdrawing from the TPP? Was that Did that hand China a strategic victory? Withdrawing from the TPP with no multilateral effort to replace it and just leaving a big vacuum out there has absolutely handed China a strategic victory. So uh, let me ask you about yourself just to, just to finish, because uh, we started in Minneapolis. What about the notion of you going back? That's been speculated on, that you'd return to Minnesota and pursue a political career of your own. Is that a viable option for you? I mean, it's a viable option in a sense. It, it's something that sitting here today, um, I continue to be really passionate about the place I grew up, about my hometown, about the state of Minnesota. You know, we were talking about Hubert Humphrey and what he represents. And when I think of Minnesota, I think of people like Hubert Humphrey and the, those values. And so to be a part of that is something that would be very exciting. Uh, this, of course, is now no longer just a Jake decision. This is a family decision. And my wife and I have had a lot of conversations about where the two of us together would be best placed to make a difference and make an impact. Um, so it's certainly possible that, that I end up uh, trying to contribute to public life in Minnesota, maybe by running for office or in some other way. Uh, it's also possible that that we choose to to do something else, and that's what I got married actually during the campaign a couple of years ago, and um, am am now learning how to make these kind of go through these collective decisions as opposed to just kind of you know what I want to turn around and do. Yeah, well, I must say, your if your wife's willing to ma- marry you in the middle of a campaign, <laughs> she's a stout woman, and uh, will uh, that 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 bodes well for the future. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure she knew exactly what she was getting into, but but now she's stuck with me, too late so. now. Yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. Jake Sullivan, it's great to great to be with you. Thank you for being at the Institute of Politics. Look forward to many more conversations. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.